0: Well, good morning. So a couple weeks ago, we did a date night at our house, which we do uh, once a month, where my wife Monica takes two of the kids and I take the other two of the kids and we have a date night with our kids. And a couple weeks ago, I had the two younger kids, the two-year-old and the four-year-old. Four-year-old's my boy named Ellen. And as we were heading out to hop in the car to go out on our date night together, I I have no shame in this, okay? (laughs) Was, was belting out the soundtrack to Moana, okay? Where the dad's at? Who's with me? Just me. It's all right. It's all right. It's good music. So I'm hopping in the car and I'm belting it out and Owen from the back seat says, Dad, Dad, Dad. I was like, yeah, pal, what is it? He's like, you know, it's not often just us in the car. He's like, could we just have some quiet? I thought... Yeah, sure, pal, we can have some quiet. And so we had quiet for about 10 seconds, and then he talked for the next four hours after that. But I just, I just, I just thought his, his request was so good, and I thought it reflected so accurately what our spoken and unspoken prayer is pretty frequently, right? You know, that in the face of just the day-to-day, everything going on, and the texts coming in, and the emails coming in, and the demands from kids, and parents, and all of the everything clamoring for our time and attention, um, and, and just in the face of everything that seems so urgent, we just have that desire to elevate and see not just what's most urgent, but what's most important and I think a lot of us have had those experiences throughout our days and throughout our weeks where we just want to have a sense of something bigger than just the stuff that's right in front of us, demanding our time, attention, and energy. And I think we have that desire. Wherever you fall on the spiritual spectrum, I think we've all had that sense of, you know, if, if God is there, that we just in the midst of all of the noise, that we would just have a sense, some kind of sense of his presence, that if he is there, he would just Give us some kind of impression or sense. Or if you're a follower of Christ, you've had that sense of you want to not just know things about God, but those moments where you just want to feel him, where you know he's present, but you just want to experience that presence. Um, And and I think the reason for that, I think the reason for that is because we we were created for this. Created to exist in, in the presence of God, like that was our de- default setting was, was that we were created to exist in the very presence of God, where we could see him as he is and respond to him for who He is, that we could we could talk to him and hear him talk back to us. We were made for that, and ever since the the, the disconnect between us and God we 've ached for it we 've longed for it because we were created to not just know God and see God but to live in response to who God is. And that's what the Bible refers to as worship. You know, we have, we have all kinds of images that come into our mind when we hear that word worship, but it comes from an old English word that means worth and refers to our response to the worth of someone or something. And people worship all kinds of things that they find um, worthy. But, but in this context, it's talking about our response to who God is is worship, and we were made for it. But I think so frequently in our lives, instead of having this, what we have is a bunch of noise. It's everything that's coming at us and demanding our response. It's the urgent. Everything from moment to moment, day to day, is urgent, urgent, urgent. And I think what happens is, instead of living out our lives in response to who God is, we live our lives in response to the tyranny of the urgent. I think what so many of us need day in and day out, and week to week, and in this moment right now, I think what so many of us need, 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 is to be able to rise above the noise and just get a glimpse Just just be able to experience at a deeper level who God is. And God has given us so many ways that we can do that, to, to maintain a mindfulness of him and a connection with him throughout the day. And we talk about them frequently. We talk about prayer and the importance of having a healthy daily prayer life. And we talk about the importance of being engaged in scripture and understanding who God is as he's revealed himself through his word. And we talk about being connected to God through his body, the church, and community. There's this one thing, this huge, 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 powerful way that was meant to allow us to elevate above the noise and experience God in a much deeper way that gets overlooked a lot. I mean, we do it, but we don't always realize why we do it. Or we don't do it, and we see other people doing it, and we don't really realize why they're doing it. We just assume it's a weird Christian thing that Christians do because Christians have always done it, but we don't really know why we do it. And we don't know why we do it because we never talk about it, but it's this huge, powerful thing that was meant to allow us to elevate above the noise. And this is what we're going to be talking about this morning and through the rest of this series. And what we're going to be talking about is this. Singing. 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 When we come together on Sunday mornings and we sing, it is our collective response, our collective worship of who God is. And I get it. Singing together seems really, really weird. It's just one of those things that there's no other context in our lives where we just get together and sing. Like, it's not like this afternoon before the game starts, you're going to be like, hey guys, for kickoff, you know, why don't we sing some songs together. <laughs> we just don't. And so... What this message isn't going to be, what the series isn't going to be, it's not going to be about like, if you were a good Christian, you would be singing and why aren't you singing and you need to be singing and you better be singing. It's not meant to be that because I've been in them and you've been in them. those churches that pressure you and they make you feel so isolated and like you stand apart and it makes you feel ashamed and embarrassed if you're the one not singing. And that is never going to be the kind of church that this is. You are always welcome here to sing or not sing. You can come for the rest of your life and never sing and you will be so Welcome here. So it's not going to be that kind of message, but it is going to be a message about things that maybe you didn't know about singing, things that I've been learning over the past couple weeks as I've been looking into this, because it's one of those things that we just don't think about, we don't talk about. So a lot of things that we just don't know. So it's going to be about like, did you know? Now you might have known that music had an impact on memory, right? There are a lot of things we've memorized to music, the alphabet. My kids have learned the states, the state capitals, and all the presidents because of songs that, you know, set those things to music. But did you know that the reason that we have an easier time memorizing something that's set to music is because music makes information more retrievable. We have an easier time retrieving that information when it's set to music. And did you know that we remember music, and we remember memories attached to music, even when the music isn't present? So that you can remember and feel the emotions that you had when the music was present, even when that music's not there, and you're just remembering the music. And did you know that musical memory is stored in a part of the brain that is separate from other memories? And it's a part of the brain that isn't impacted by Alzheimer's uh, or other neurological disorders like stroke or dementia. And oftentimes, traumatic brain injury will affect people's memory Uh, and produce amnesia, but not affect their musical memory. It's like musical memory gets stored in a part of the brain that isn't affected by any of these other things. And so someone might not remember your name or be able to string together three words in a sentence, but they can sing a song from their childhood perfectly and on pitch. Isn't that interesting? And you probably knew You probably knew that when you hear a song from childhood, it produces uh, uh, memories or reminiscence of that time in your childhood or earlier life. When scientists look at it in, in an MRI, they call that a reminiscence bump. But did you know those same reminiscence bumps are seen in descendants of people two generations removed, that when they hear the same music, it produces the same reminiscence bump, even if they didn't have any previous exposure to that music? So that the way that you possibly experience and respond to music now could it impact the way your grandchildren respond to the same music years from now. Isn't that interesting? that music and how we experience it is almost unforgettable. And maybe you knew that music and singing together health benefits. You might have guessed that. But did you know that when we hear music it actually causes our body to release uh, endorphins? Endorphins are what help our body deal with pain and stress and can give us a sense of euphoria. And did you know that patients coming out of surgery who've been exposed to music require less medication to manage their pain than patients who aren't exposed to music? And did you know? that infants in neonatal intensive care units who are exposed to music, they uh, respond better, they uh, heal faster, they grow faster than infants who aren't exposed to music. And did you know that doctors now are prescribing not just music, but singing together, doctors are, are prescribing singing together for patients to recover from depression, PTSD, Parkinson's, and asthma? And did you know that singing together actually boosts your immune system and makes you more able to resist cold and flu? And did you know that studies show that people who sing together actually have a longer lifespan? And isn't that interesting? That it's as if if singing together heals us. And you probably knew that music had a positive impact on emotions. You probably knew that. But did you know that people who sing together show lower levels of cortisol in their body? Cortisol is what your body releases when you experience fear, anxiety, or stress. But people who sing together have lower levels. And it's as if singing together makes us fear less. And did you know that when we sing together, it actually causes your brain to release two chemicals, two neurotransmitters, serotonin and dopamine, which are the same neurotransmitters that are released when you eat chocolate, have sex, do drugs, or drink alcohol. Isn't that interesting? It produces this sense of pleasant, content euphoria when we sing together, which is interesting because Paul writes to a group of followers of Christ in Ephesus not to get drunk on the wine, but... Not to get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and spiritual songs to one another, making music in your hearts to God. Isn't that interesting? And did you know that singing together also causes your brain to release a chemical called oxytocin? Get this. When oxytocin and dopamine are released together, it it prevents that dopamine release from becoming addictive which is what happens when people do drugs or drink. It releases dopamine without oxytocin, causes it to become addictive, but when oxytocin is released with dopamine, it keeps it from becoming addictive. So singing together can produce euphoria without becoming addictive. Side note, might be the most important note for some of you, is that that same thing happens when two people engage in sex as an act of uh, expression of their complete and absolute devotion to one another. When sex is engaged in, in that way, it releases dopamine and oxytocin and prevents it from becoming addictive, causes it to become a bonding activity, and but people who engage in sex just for the physical encounter of it, your brain does not release oxytocin, but just dopamine, which causes it to become addictive. Isn't that interesting? It's like God knew what he was doing when he made us. <laughs> you might have known that music also, when we sing together, it pulls us together. But did you know that that oxytocin that's released when we sing together also is called the bonding chemical. And when oxytocin is released, it causes us to feel connected to and trusting of one another and makes us feel more connected. And did you know that singing together also impacts the parts of our brains that makes us feel less like individuals and more like the parts of a larger whole? Which is probably why singing together promotes greater greater group cohesion than just listening to music together or even performing on a sports team together. Singing together has a bigger impact than both of those things. And did you know that studies have found that people who sing together have been found to have synchronized heart rates? Which means that when we sing together, our hearts literally align. Isn't that interesting? And all of these things and many more are probably why musician after musician after musician after musician have concluded the same things as Morton Loredzin, who says that he's an American composer, and this is what he says. This is what he says. We strive to go to those places that are beyond words, that cannot be explained. For me, these are very sacred places when you experience something that is so profound, there is no way you can begin to express it through words or really by any other means. That music and singing together has this power to get us to a place that we can't get to otherwise. Which maybe, maybe is why God, over the past Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years has invited his people to come and sing together. And is why we find throughout the pages of Scripture, God's people coming and singing together. And we find descriptions not of just God's people singing together, but God's people and angels and creation and trees and mountains and and, and, and seas joining together to sing to God And around the world today, people continue to sing together. But did you know that only recently, within the last couple generations, has Western culture lost this? We've handed singing and the responsibility of singing, the role of singing over to performers and professionals and entertainers. And we've taken a back seat and become consumers and spectators of singing And what if we've lost something? What if we've lost something? What if we've lost the ability to get to a place and have an experience that was meant to be a normal part of our lives? And what if we've lost something that was meant to help us elevate into the presence of God and see him for who he is unlike anything else can Because isn't that what so many of us need in our day-to-day lives is that ability to see God, to rise above the noise and see God for who he is. And what if, what if God wants to redeem and restore, not just music, but the power of singing together to elevate us and invite us into and get us to a place where we can experience him like we can't any other way. And so we're going to be talking about quickly for the rest of this morning and throughout this series is not just music and not just the power of singing together, but how the songs that we sing are meant to remind us and allow us to more deeply experience and understand how to respond to who God is. And the song that we're going to be talking about this morning is the song that we ended our worship set with called The Great I Am. Now, if you haven't been around the church or you didn't grow up in the church, you might not know what the great I am means or where that came from. But if you grew up in Sunday school or were raised in the church, you probably remember that story where, where God calls Moses to go down into Egypt and to free his people from slavery there. God tells Moses, go down, tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Remember that, Charlton Heston? It was actually Moses the first time that <laughs> Moses was supposed to go down and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Moses, who was very, very reluctant about this, went back to God and said, but who should I tell them is sending me? Who should I tell them has sent me down here? Because they're going to question me. They're going to doubt me. They're going to have, they're not going to be so sure. So who should I tell them is sending me? And here's what God says to Moses. He says, you tell them this. You tell them, I am has sent me to you. You tell them, I am has sent me to you. Because here was what God had to do right off the bat. God had to demonstrate that he was a God unlike any other God that human beings had ever heard of. And here's the really I find this so fascinating, that up until this moment, in human history, human beings, no human beings had ever conceived of a God that existed outside of his own creation. You check the archaeological, the ancient historical documents. There is no record of humanity ever conceiving of a God that existed out of creation until this moment. And God knew. I have to demonstrate right off the bat. I have to convince you that I'm a God unlike any other God you've ever heard of. I am a God who exists outside of time and space. And so when Moses, who's going down to Egypt that has like 1,500 gods, says, who shall I say sent me? God says, you tell them I am sent you. And this is F you are saying, you tell them that I am unlike any other God they have ever heard of. I am. I am without beginning. I am without end. I am without birth, creation, race, or ethnicity. I am apart from all things. I am beyond creation. I am before all things. I am the reason for all things. I am the creator of all things. And I am transcendent above all things. I am. Because off the bat, God had to show, I am not a God who has some power. I'm a God who has all power. I'm not a God who knows some things. I am a God who knows all things. I'm not a God who is subject to any power, but all power is subject to me. The earth had never heard of such a God before. And God said, I am. And then as God's people respond to him, It's as if God is so big and so infinite that they have a hard time getting their minds around this kind of God. It was almost as if they couldn't grasp what this God was truly like. It was like God had said, I am, and just left it blank. And it was like they struggled to fill in what goes in that blank. And I think a lot of us find ourselves in that place Struggling and trying to figure out God is what? And it's like there's just a blank there. And I think if we were really honest and we went around the room this morning, I think we would have almost as many answers to what goes in that blank as we have people who are sitting here. And if we didn't just answer what we knew was supposed to be the right answer, we might have all kinds of answers that God is distant, that God is silent that God is huge, that God is unknowable, that God is confusing, that God is quiet, that God is frightening, all of it based on our experiences. We so often try to fill in that blank based on our experiences, or we fill in that blank with what we were told when we were kids, or we fill in that blank with whatever our imaginations tell us from moment to moment. And sometimes we feel like we've gotten our hands around who God is, and we know it goes in that blank, but then it's just like it slips through our fingers. Sometimes, and we struggle with it. And the truth is, as long as we struggle with who God is, we'll struggle with how we respond. To God, Because our response to God is always based on who God is. And so throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we see God's people just trying to wrap their mind around this enormous, infinite God that they could never have conceived of. And they struggle with how to respond to this God. And so throughout the Old Testament, God points forward to a time. He points forward to a day. He points forward to a person through he, through, who, through whom he is going to fully Reveal Himself, And so throughout the pages of the Old Testament, throughout the prophets, we hear God saying, I know that this is difficult, but one day it's going to make so much sense. One day you are going to get it. I know you're struggling with who I am, but one day it's going to become crystal clear and you're going to get it. One day, one day someone is going to come and I'm going to reveal myself fully through that person. One day I'm going to finish this statement God is. I'm going to finish what I started. 1,500 years later, 1,500 years after God told Abraham, I am, 1,500 years later, a child is born and they name him Jesus. And he lives a life unlike anybody has ever lived and teaches unlike anybody has ever taught before. And he tells them over and over again, I'm the one that God was pointing towards. I'm the one that you've been waiting for all of these long years. It was me, it was me, it was me. And throughout his life, we see people coming to him and saying, but who are you really? Where have you come from? Who are you? And so one day, Jesus is having a conversation with the crowd, and they're asking him, but who are you? And next to Jesus is one of his followers named John, who's just writing everything down. You know? He's just chronicling Jesus' life, and, he's just, and he hears them asking Jesus, but who are you? And he's like, "I can't wait to hear what he says, and he's ready to write. And we find his account in the book of John, he says this. They Jesus, but who are you? And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus said, you want to know who I am? I am. I am is who I am. If you want to know who I am, that's who I am. I am. And the religious leaders knew exactly, exactly what he was saying because they bent over and started picking up stones to stone him because they knew what he was claiming. He was claiming that he was the I am. Jesus, Jesus stood there and said, I am I am the one who created all things. I am the one you've been worshiping and praying to all of these long years. I am the one who led you out of slavery. I am the one who parted the sea. I am the one who's watched over and provided for you and protected you all of these years. Because what God wanted them to see then and all of humanity ever since was to see that Jesus, Jesus, shows us exactly who God is. And if we ever wonder what God is like, God is like Jesus. In Jesus, God has made himself knowable. God has taken the huge and made it small. He's taken the unknowable and made it knowable. He's taken the spiritual and made it physical so that he could be known. And the image and understanding that God wants us to have of him is Jesus. So you, if you believe in a God that looks like anything but Jesus, then you believe in the wrong God. If you serve a God that is any different than Jesus, then you serve the wrong God. If you're praying to or worshiping a God that looks anything unlike Jesus, you're praying to and worshiping the wrong God because God is exactly like Jesus and that's what everything about Jesus was meant to show us. This is where God was saying, this is who I am. And he came into the world. He came into the world not with lightning and, and thunder and, and all the works. He didn't come into the world to overpower or to frighten or intimidate or to coerce. But he comes into the world. How does the great I am come into the world? He comes into the world in the most humble, gentle, vulnerable Form. The great I am, as an infant, to say, I am humble. I am gentle. I am willing to set aside my power and become vulnerable so that you can come safely to me. That's the great I am. And then he lived a life. Of power, but never once, not once, used his power to overwhelm or produce fear or to terrify or to destroy. Listen, he only, only, only ever used his power to heal and restore, to feed the hungry, to stop storms, and to raise the dead. The great I am came to show I'm not going to leverage my power to be served, but I will always, always leverage my power to serve, and then allowed himself to be nailed to a cross without lifting a finger against his own creation, the creation that he loved, and dies on a cross to show that if I am willing to die for you, then I am for you, the great I am nailed to a cross." And all of it, all of it, all of it, all of it, all of it. Because God had come to finish the statement. He had come to finish what he started. He came to prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that God is worthy. He's worthy. We have to get this. We've got to get this because this impacts our entire relationship with God. He is not worthy because of his power. Lots of people have power. He is worthy because he can be trusted with all power, and he's proven it. And this is where so many Followers of Christ and teachers get mixed up on who God is and what makes him holy and what makes him worthy. So many people believe and teach that God is worthy because he is powerful and strong and mighty, and all those things are true. He is. But what makes him worthy is he can be trusted with all power and strength, that he will never use it arbitrarily. He will never use it to force himself on anyone, that he would. That his power, his strength is always, always, always bridled. It's always restrained by his love and his goodness and his gentleness and his humility. And that his true power, his true power isn't in his strength or his might. His true power is in his love that he demonstrates Something that is so beautiful and so good that it wins people over, it wins hearts, it melts hearts, it changes lives when people get a glimpse not of the power of God but the beautiful, loving, humble goodness of God. That's his power. And when we sing in the song that, that no one will be able to stand before the great I am, it's not because people are going to be so terrified or so afraid that they fall to the ground. It's because when people see how good he is and the beauty of his love and kindness and gentleness, it'll just melt their hearts. They, their knees will buckle. They won't be able to stand. And when we sing in the song that no power in hell will be able to stand against him, It's not because of his strength and his power and its might. It's because the power of hell lies in Satan's deception. Satan's argument against God from the very beginning that God isn't good, we can't trust him, and the only reason anybody would align themselves with him is because they're afraid of his power. That God is all-powerful and we should live in fear, distrusting fear of God But God has blown the doors off of Satan's argument and shown that he will never use his power against us. He will never use his power arbitrarily. That he will only, only, only use his power for good and healing and restoration. That he's a good God. And he's proven that he's worthy. And so 30 years later, 30 years after Jesus stood there and said, I am that same follower of Jesus who was standing next to him, writing it all down, whose jaw dropped when Jesus said, I am. That same follower of Jesus, 30 years later in life, was exiled to an island in the Mediterranean because of his testimony about Jesus. And on that island, God gives him a glimpse of what is to come. On that island, God gives John this glimpse of what heaven looks like. And when John sees this, he writes it all down. And here's what he describes He says, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne, and all the living creatures and the elders. So here's all of heaven, all of the entire angelic community surrounding the throne of God. And here's what they're doing in a loud voice. They sang, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. The entire angelic community circled around the throne of God, not a God who rules in might and power and fear and revenge, circled around the throne of God and seated seated on it as a lamb. And the entire angelic community just goes nuts. He's so worthy. He's so worthy. Nobody, nobody, there's no one beside him that's as worthy of power and strength and glory and praise. He is worthy. Can you imagine this angelic community who watched this God speak Creation into existence, and then watch that same God, the great I am, humble himself as an infant and allow himself to be nailed to a cross by the creation he loves. These angels were just won over. They couldn't believe it. Oh, we never could have imagined this kind of goodness, we never would have imagined this level of love. Oh, he's so worthy, so worthy, so worthy. We never have to run from him. We never have to doubt him. We never have to hide from him. We can come to him. We can trust him. We can draw near to him safely because he is worthy. That's who God is. And we can lose that week to week. We can lose that and all of the noise. And it's so easy to get turned around, but we've gotta to, gotta to remember that he is worthy. Next week, what we're going to talk about, today we talked about who God is. Next next week, we're going to talk about something that a lot of us, all of us, can get confused and turned around about from time to time. That's how do we respond? What does it look like to respond to a God like that? We're going to be talking about how the songs that we sing help remind us and teach us how we're supposed to respond to a God like that. So please, come back next week. Don't miss next week. Now... Before we wrap up, we're going to do one last thing. We're going to have one of our vocalists from the worship team come out on stage because a lot of times, most of the time, all the time, we see our vocalists up here singing, leading the the time of worship for us, and we see their passion, but we, we don't always get to hear the story behind their passion you know our vocalists who who lead the worship they're not just here to teach us how to sing but they take personal responsibility for allowing the the songs that they sing and the worship that they lead to minister to their own hearts and they cultivate their own relationships in worship and and set a really good example for us for what it looks like to allow singing together and music to cultivate our hearts and allow us to experience and see who God is. So this is Jasmine Asvera and she leads us through um, that song from time to time. The Great I Am. And we, we were interacting this week about just how, how significant and impactful that song has been to her personally. So I just wanted to share her experiences or allow her to share her experiences uh, with the rest of us. So, Jasmine, as we were going back and forth this week, you were talking about how when you first became a follower of Jesus and you read the account of Jesus' life in John's gospel for the first time, just how blown away you were um, by Jesus' claims about himself. And I was wondering if you could just talk about that briefly.
1: Sure. Yes, I was definitely um, captivated. Captivated by Jesus, by every word that he said. And I was just so, uh, so taken, so captivated and smitten by his um, descriptions of himself that it was really just startling to think this person, here he is walking the earth, a regular, well, a human like like us, saying things like, I and the Father are one. And whoever has seen me has seen the Father also. And I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, even though he dies, yet he will live. And I thought... Who says that? Who walks around saying that? What is he saying? He's saying these amazing things about himself. And like you were describing earlier, um, my favorite of all was when challenged by the people of his time, Mm -hmm. he very knowingly said, before Abraham was born, I am. And that was such a conclusive statement of his identity that it just, it sealed the deal in my heart about who He is.
0: Yeah, and then you also talked about how this song in particular has really amplified your awareness of who God is. How has that worked?
1: Yes, uh, very much so. Um, One of the lyrics in the song says, the mountains shake before you. And I think, wow, it's because He's awesome, because He's almighty because he's amazing. When he appeared to talk with Moses, the whole mountain trembled, so much so that the people were afraid and they didn't want to approach. But you know, when Jesus came on earth as God in flesh, you know, he also, he had command over the waves and the wind, over nature, over people. The demons did run and flee. They were subject to him, but by the same token, He was also this gentle, kind God who also healed the brokenhearted. He went to the people who were cast out Mm -hmm. and he expressed compassion to them. He took children and put them on his knee and because of that incredible gentleness and love that he displayed, it just made my heart say, well, that I, I want to be close, Lord. I want to be close to you, close to your side. I want to join that angelic community in singing. I want to be near to your heart. I want to love the things you love, and I want to hate the things that are sinful.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that, and that title, the, the Great I Am, can so often make God seem like um, this distant unreachable being but how god uh completely changed the significance of that title so the great i am is this very close very intimate yes. very uh, uh, approachable very being.
1: personal
0: yeah so one last question how how is this song personally ministered to you in your life
1: yeah. in a lot of ways in a lot of ways i think um one way um, is actually when we introduced the song. I was going in a. I was in a Bible study that happened to be about the life of Moses, so it was very meaningful as far as the truth of the song and what I was learning. But I was also going through some hard things at that time, and just in my personal time, my personal quiet time, where I would, you know, get on my knees and pray, the words of this song became something I could pray. I could just say, hallelujah, holy, holy, God almighty, you're the great I am. Who is worthy? There's none beside you. You're God almighty. You're the great I am. And I could just turn to him. And together with the biblical truths I was learning, it just songs like this just cement God's truth into my heart and life. So that as I'm walking out, you know, when the moment we walk out these doors, life becomes hectic, stressful, the to-do list is staring at us, um, but I can remember that I am held in the arms of the great I am, and he goes before me, and he surrounds me, and so I can have peace because I live in him.
0: That's awesome. Thank you. Thank um, we're going to close out uh, by, by joining together uh, one last time in the great I am. And like I said at the beginning, there, there's, there's never going to be any pressure here to, to engage beyond what you're comfortable with. But what I would encourage is I'll just invite anyone to, to step a little way out of your comfort zone if you're interested to, to, to be a part of what I think we're about to experience here this morning.
2: Is alive. I want to hear voices of angels above singing as one. Hating the dark. I wanna see dry bones living again.
0: you so much. You are so worthy of all of our praise, of our lives. We thank you so much for giving us this glimpse of who you are, for pulling us together to experience you this morning. Allow us to continue to draw near to you throughout this week. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.